it's that thumbs down thing that is the greatest myth because no one really knows. But it's now thought, of course, that the thumbs up meant kill your adversary, kill the wounded man. Cut the throat. Yeah. Cut the throat, whereas yeah. a clenched fist or the thumb down meant sheathe your sword. Yeah. The man is to be saved. Hello and welcome. My name is Tom Ashton and I'm back for more bloody violent history with James Jackson. Together we're going to talk about moments from the past that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we're heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Hail Caesar, those of us about to die salute you. Jamie won't let me say it in Latin due to my dreadful Britannus accent. This week we are going to discuss gladiators, professional and sometimes not so expert combatants who fought to the death in Roman public shows. Gladiator derives from the Latin word gladius, the short stabbing sword used to great effect by the Roman legionaries. Jamie, before we get into the why and how, can you remind us of some of the famous fighters, gladiators, from the time of the Roman Republic and subsequent empire? Can I just say right from the start, Tom, I'm Spartacus. Well, if you're Spartacus, I don't think they'd have got very far. <laughs> perhaps I'm, perhaps I'm, going over a cliff might have been as far as they got. I'm about to be crucified during this podcast. But yes, gladiators have always captured the imagination, whether from ancient Rome to the present day. People like to watch others fight and people like to watch others die. I mean, that's why public executions were so popular uh, up until the 19th century in this country. So, and even longer elsewhere. But gladiators were very much part of the whole Roman tradition, part of their culture. And if you take, for example, two gladiators, Priscus and Verus, who fought at the inauguration of the Colosseum in AD 80, you can see how famous men like that became. They fought for hours. They fought each other to a standstill. And it became a draw at the end of the day. They, they were allowed to survive and they were so evenly matched. And that's one of the things that, that it, people don't realise about gladiators is they tended to match the same kinds of gladiator and those who are at a similar level of proficiency because there's no point having gladiatorial combat where it's the weak against the strong. There's no fun in that. There's no sport in that. So after a lot of training and different grades that they reached, uh, it was important that, that they could actually put on a display, and that's what it was all about. And they were the sporting heroes of their day, essentially. They were, and they were wrapped up in the sort of flamboyance and the uh, presentation and the pageant of the gladiatorial festivals and the pageants that were going on. So, you know, and there were a lot of people involved. If you took a key gladiator school in Rome, for example, they would have up to 2,000 gladiators training there. So it was very much part of the culture. And sometimes they fought in the Colosseum. Sometimes they even fought in the Circus Maximus. There were, there were all sorts of things going on at the time. And people tried to vary it, those who were putting on the games. They wanted to vary it, both for the emperor and for the crowd, for the Roman population. 
Okay, let's uh, get back to a couple of these uh, these famous gladiators. So we've had Priscus and Verus, um, and then we have Spiculus. Yes, Spiculus was another famous one. Basically, he was the great favourite of Nero, and he was unbeaten. He had killed a lot of people in the arena. And when Nero was killed, essentially, uh, like so many of those emperors, he wanted Spiculus to do the deed. He admired him so much. And because gladiatorial combat and gladiators themselves were wrapped up with the concept of manhood, virility, and what it was to be a Roman, and gladiators could gain their freedom and Roman citizenship, you know, this was the ultimate, to be killed by a gladiator, to be killed by a combatant. I suppose if you wanted to be killed quickly and efficiently and hopefully in the least painful fashion, you want somebody who knows how to do it. So a gladiator might be the, the guy who knows where to poke the sword in in the right place. Yes, and, and they were legendary. I mean, there was another gladiator called Flammer, and he was Syrian, and he was legendary because he got to the age of 30, which was quite old for a gladiator, and had been in 34 combats that he had won, and or at least survived. You know, he actually killed the other man in 21 of the combats in which he was involved. He drew nine times. He received a reprieve four times. In Basically, he was defeated or considered to have been defeated. But he was allowed to live because he put on such a great performance. And that's what it was all about. You had to be able to perform. And if you were liked by the crowd, if you were liked by the emperor, then your chances of survival were greater. And he, he actually won the, the Rudius, which is, a, uh, which is a wooden sword given uh, as an award to exceptional gladiators. It might have been a wooden sword or a wooden stick. That's right. He won it four times. He was awarded it four times, which would have given him his freedom. But he chose to go on fighting. It, it was such a way of life. And it, it gave a certain appeal. There, there was an allure to it. And it gave you status. He decided to go on fighting. That's what he did. And many of the most successful gladiators were ex-soldiers. They had been taken in battle. And so it, they stuck to what they knew. Uh, they weren't just uh, prisoners of war and slaves and captives. Uh, sometimes people would volunteer to be gladiators. Uh, there was even an emperor who at least took part in some rather iffy gladiatorial combats. Well, Commodus was notorious. and He, he, he specialised in fighting either people who were armed with wooden swords or physically incapacitated, disabled people. That's, that's what gave him his joy. And so there was comedy in it, but also there was entertainment and a certain spectacular to see your emperor uh, fighting other men, but, but also fighting them without any risk to himself. I mean, Commodus actually joined the animal hunts as well, and he, he's believed to have killed a 100 lions in one uh, arena spectacular. Uh, but he happened to be on a platform, so he was at no risk, but he managed to kill the big cats. And unfortunately, Russell Crowe didn't actually kill him. And no-one killed Russell Crowe. <laughs> he just got bigger and bigger. <laughs> <laughs> he fell on one of the lines. <laughs> yeah. He was the biggest cat in the arena. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we should bring back Oliver Reed. 
Indeed. God yeah. bless him. I, I've actually I've actually drunk in the pub in Malta where he had his last beverages. I think I have too. Yes, I think I yeah. have. Is, is it that one that's on the sort of harbour harbour? I think it's called the pub or something. Yes, and, and, and they, of, they give a you a ghastly Erzatz British pub in there. Uh, uh, yeah, and they give you a list of all the things he drank before he started turning blue. But uh, it was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, well, he went out in style. Yeah, what a gladiator. He was. And in, f- in fact, the, um, you know, the gladiator the movie was very popular, but there's a fantastic gladiatorial scene in the HBO series called Rome, which I don't know if you ever heard about that one, but um, I can't remember which one it is. It's, it's set in a much smaller uh, stadium than you sort of imagine from these great uh, epic films um, and uh, there's a couple of Romans ones and their ex-legionaries and it's uh, it's very well choreographed well worth seeing if you look it up Rome Gladiator you'll probably get it on YouTube it's a nice fight yeah and, fight. and most of these fights took place in 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 tiny amphitheater they they weren't in the Colosseum. they they it, it spread across the provinces and there's evidence of gladiatorial conflict in many many parts of the roman empire so it's one of the reasons that amphitheaters were, were were built it's it's certainly not just for theatrical productions and who was the most famous gladiator in history other than me <laughs> Spartacus. I just can delete that bit. <laughs> it's not even worth You'd be cannon fodder, Jamie. Total. I'm, I'm coming in behind you saying, yeah, especially when the lions are involved. I'm saying he's big yeah. and meaty. <laughs> it's, 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 it's under, my, under my, my maxim. I may be rubbish, but it's my right. Yeah. The, the... I mean, that's why I've been feeding him on biscuits so the lions can catch him. Yeah. Which way? <laughs> but, uh, Spartacus. Spartacus was the man. And he, of course, led the Third Servile Revolt. And it started in Capua when he and 70 other gladiators broke into the armory and stole weapons. And it started from there. And there was serious grievances. He ended up with 70,000 slaves uh, across Italy joining his cause and routing and massacring Roman armies. Uh, one of the problems for Rome was, A, there was a sort of civil war situation and b that the legions were in other parts of the world in spain and elsewhere putting down revolts fighting wars so there were no decent legions so you got constantly legions sent you had uh, militias being sent and every single time you know spartacus who himself was a thracian uh, gladiator and a mamillo was was highly trained you know they were very good at combat and they had nothing to lose so you know they routed whoever came up against them and it was only when crassus brought down legions 40,000 men that spartacus was eventually uh, forced to retreat tried to get on board with sicilian pirates and escape with a couple of thousand men uh, that failed when he was deserted by the sicilian pirates and he probably died in battle. But 6,000 other slaves were crucified along the Via Appia uh, on the way to Rome. So it, it was a hideous end to that particular revolt. was a lesson to slaves not to revolt because the whole economy of the Roman Empire was based on slave labour. 
and it put the fear of God into the Romans. They, they realized how vulnerable they were. And that was one of the problems with, with having gladiators around. They could be used as bodyguards and were used by bodyguards at different stages by different groups. And they were often used as auxiliary troops, but they could also turn. And that was one of the problems, particularly if you had you know, 2,000 trained men in one gladiatorial school, for example. Yeah, just much like the um, Praetorian Guard later on under the emperors. They could it, turn and... Uh... Exactly, exactly. Okay, so what is it, Jamie, the allure of the gladiator? Oh, I think virility and manhood. Uh, We've talked about the legends and the famous ones, but in day-to-day life in Rome, brides, for example, parted their hair, allegedly, with a spear tip, and uh, the spear tip used by a gladiator had particular significance. This was important. This was about manhood. This was about blood and death and standing up to Rome's enemies or standing up with courage in the arena. So parting your hair with a spear tip of a gladiator really meant something, in the same way that the wealthy women of Rome often bought the the blood and the sweat of gladiators because it was seen as an aphrodisiac. So all these things fed into Roman culture. And also uh, lovers, gladiatorial lovers of high-born women were popular. Yes, it was just a bit of rough and there's nothing new in that. And even Marcus Aurelius's wife, Faustina the Younger, was believed to have had an affair with a well-known gladiator and her offspring from that uh, allegedly apparently was none other than our friend Commodus maybe that's where he got his instinct for fighting in the arena uh, with against physical cripples so apparently they also had um, gladiatorial combat between women and dwarves as well that was another Oh, I, I think I think Rome became so depraved, decadent that anything went. If someone could come up with a new idea, they would do it. And why have a dwarf throwing contest when you can have a dwarf fighting contest? Yeah. You know, this is what people were looking for. They were looking for the next kick, the next thing that would be gossiped about and talked about for the next few weeks. So you know, whether it was having affairs with gladiators or coming up with different types of conflict for gladiators or giving a historical twist to their combat, this is what people were seeking. And like all these things, they're sort of it's a sort of race to the bottom. Supposedly, it started um, with funeral rites in Etruscan period, and the Romans took it from that, uh, rather like uh, sooty in in India, you know, where the wives throw themselves onto the pyre of the dead husband. And the Romans, being so incredibly efficient at doing anything, managed to create this whole industry of gladiatorial combat in a way that um, other civilizations and tribes and so on were a bit ham-fisted about it in the same way that transporting wild animals from africa became a huge industry so this is what became so important whether it was transporting prisoners of war to train them as gladiators or transporting elephants big cats you name it this became part of the general entertainment and we we spoke about 
emperors using auxiliary troops, using gladiators in their sort of provincial armies. Uh, the Emperor Otto in AD 69, uh, he used about 2,000 gladiators in a battle because, you know, they were very useful. They were very useful as fluid fighters, as people who could outflank, manoeuvre and play dirty on the battlefield beyond the, the sort of serried ranks of the legions. But if you also, if you wanted to get yourself elected, wasn't the whole idea that you put on a big show and uh, that got the, the, the plebs to vote for you? Yes, bread and games. It was always the way. It was ever thus. And it's, it, it was very important. You just wouldn't get elected unless you put money into those sort of events. Hello, folks. Tom here. I'd like to thank the Bennetts, father and son. They're great supporters of this podcast. Nick is at Sandhurst and helps me track down military historians. His father, David, also an ex-soldier, runs Stansted Park, and I want to give them a plug. Stansted Park on the Hampshire borders and the former home of the Punsonby family is staging the Battle of Waterloo performed by 200 reenactors of the Napoleonic Association. This thrilling event is part of the country estate's summer jamboree being held over the weekend of the 2nd and 3rd of July. The mansion boasts two sabres from the battle which are considered artefacts of national significance. The first sabre is that of General Sir William Punsonby who was killed leading the charge of the Union Brigade and the second belongs to Colonel Frederick Punsonby who was severely wounded commanding the 12th Light Dragoons. Also featuring are jazz and concert bands, Batala drummers, as well as the band of the Brigade of Gurkhas. Tickets for this extravaganza in the countryside can be booked via their website, stanstadpark.co.uk. I've also left a link to the website in the show notes. Right, let's get back to gladiators. Okay, well, what we should go on to now is the types of gladiator. So there were, a, there were a, quite a variety of gladiators and often they would fight similar types, but sometimes there was a pairing where they were really quite uh, different from each other. So let's have a few examples, Jamie. Well, the most basic, I suppose, was the Cestus, who, who was essentially a prize fighter. And you can see this, this boxing and the prize fighting aspect that has gone through centuries. So that was really, in a way, the start. And the Cestus, they weren't armoured. They had leather knuckle dusters with bars attached to them or, or studs attached to them. And the, the essence of the fight was to kill the opponent. And it could go on for a very long time. But there were no knives involved, no swords, no tridents, no lassoes. It was just a punch-up. And, 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 yes, a bloody mauling. I mean, it would take a lot longer than fighting with a sword. And again, you didn't have to go through a long training period. You could quite easily have a prisoner of war and set them on another prisoner of war. We're going to talk later on about slave fighting, Mandingo, and it's very similar to that. It's the same concept of just man against man in a pit. And it was very popular and, and certainly very popular in the provinces. OK. When it comes to swords, there are different uh, permutations. Um, give us an example. Well, 
you've talked about combinations and and different sort of nuances in types of gladiator, but the Dimacarius, for example, had two swords. So it wasn't just a normal gladius, it was you know, a two-sworded man. And again, that fed in later on into dueling, where people dueled in the 17th, 18th century with a sword in one hand, a rapier in one hand, and a dagger in the other, or even a buckler, a small shield in the other. So the Dimacarius was really the beginning of that, the concept of fighting with two blades. And they were usually put up against similar gladiators, similarly armed gladiators. As I pointed out earlier, you don't want the fight to end too quickly. So you have to have people who are pretty evenly matched. And I wonder how they developed these different styles. Was it just based on, you know, when they go to a different country, the legions would fight uh, a new tr- race of people who fought in a certain way and they thought, oh, well, that's interesting. Let's let's get one of those fellows back and into the arena and see how, how he does against a mamillo. Well, there was an, an element of that because you got the nautical battles with historical themes. You got some gladiators on horseback, for example, or in apparently on chariots. So you can see that there was always this desire to tap into whatever culture, whatever armies that the Roman legions had faced, and therefore having fighters, whether they were Nubian or Syrian, added something to the mix, added something to the excitement. Well, yes, I suppose it's a lot easier to train a, a Brit to ride around the arena on a chariot, which is what he was probably doing from the year dot went before he was captured. Yes, and you wanted to create theatre. That was really the key to it. So the great pairing that you see throughout the history of gladiators was really the, the Mamillo against the Retiarius. So you had the Retiarius with the trident and the net, and you had the Mamillo heavily armoured with a short sword and with a legionnaire shield, and that developed into a secateur. So you had these very specific types, and you even got helmets that were designed with a face covering with small holes so a trident can get through. You had smooth helmets so that a net couldn't get hold of it. So all these things evolved to try and create theatre, to try and create drama. And I suppose when you're sitting in a long way off in the in the Colosseum or somewhere large, being able to identify the guy you've placed your money on because he's got a trident rather than heavily armoured uh, with a shield it is a lot easier than just two guys slogging away at each other in similar setup. Well, you, you could spot me because I'd be climbing up the side of the with a line with a line attached to your loin cloth. <laughs> That actually, swinging, swinging uh, from the family jewels. That that was actually a scene from Quo Vadis, and it still haunts me to this day. Someone trying to climb up the side of the amphitheatre, and a lion loping over and grabbing him. One of those unfortunate Christians, I think. Yeah, absolutely terrible. A great bit of filming there. Eh? Uh, and then you've got the Hoplomachus. Yes, they fought with a round shield and loincloth, leg bindings. I mean, they they were part of that mix. They were part of the gang, the group that fought Mamillos quite often and also quite often fought against Thracians or Thraces. 
And were they were they based on any particular tribe or nation? Yes, they were based on the Samanites, who were sort of central South Italy, and so they were basically those who fought with a a brimmed helmet, who fought with that round shield, short sword, and they were thrown into fighting the Mamillos or the Thraces, those who fought with curved swords. So they were pretty evenly matched. They weren't over-armoured. And so it was quite a a movable sort of event. It was quite a fluid event. So if the Mamillos, they look quite like legionaries with their short-stabbing swords and so on, some of these contests it sounds like it would have been you know you're either on the home team or you know we're fighting this guy's a salmonite type and therefore is the enemy do you think it was like that that they had a sort of ooh boo you know we don't like that well certainly with the historical twists if you've got a, a thracian for example with a curved sword you can quite easily put them in persian costumes and you can turn it into a historical event my god i should be an events organizer <laughs> Yeah, there's that great bit actually coming back to the Gladiator, the movie, isn't it, where the battle they put on is won by the wrong side because uh, Russell Crowe <laughs> gets his troops together and, and uh, so they end up thinking, you know, they think it's going to go one way and it goes the other way and it's like, that's not how the history worked. Yeah, yeah, and if you're up against chariots, you're in trouble. But, you know, there's not a lot of historical evidence to to show the charioteers were involved. But they, they probably were, certainly in the... You'd need the, a big uh, You arena. needed a big arena. And you could certainly have had them in the Circus Maximus, where they were used to running anyway. But, you know, it's very difficult to have infantry against cavalry in those events because it would be over fairly quickly and you certainly wouldn't do what normally had in battle with archers for example so somebody might take a pot shot at the emperor (laughs) probably (laughs) You, you didn't tend to have lightly armed gladiators against heavily armed gladiators because it was a complete mismatch with with the exception of the retarius Yes. Retiarius. Yes, you'd certainly get the, the Retiarius against the Mamillos. You know, you'd get the Trident against the short stabbing sword, certainly. But down the centuries, as the empire became Christianized and the whole gladiator thing became uh, less acceptable, it was the horse element that gradually took over in terms of entertainment. So something quite similar to our old friend, the Retiarius, was the... The Laquiarius, uh, who fought with the lasso. So you can see all this sort of evolution in the same way that you had the Eques on their horses, you had the Esidarius in their chariots. And that's always believed to have been brought from Britain uh, by Julius Caesar. So you were talking about different societies, different cultures, adding their colour to the mix, really. And and so that's one of them, the Esidarius. Uh, although, again, there's, there's not so much historical evidence about them. But there's no doubt that if there was cavalry, there were probably charioteers as well. Yes, and also they came into the uh, uh, arena in their chariots and then dismounted and fought on foot. Um, so it wasn't charging around with knives sticking out of the wheels as such, slicing people up. It would have been the very magimix <laughs> of the gladiatorial. Yes, it would have been. It would have been pretty one-sided. Yeah. They were like dragoons, happened. a bit. I- indeed. 
Yeah, or, and you need if you need to know about dragoons, listen to episode two, cavalry, or, or, cavalry charge, or Kurdish horse archers, which have also come into the podcast. Yes, are they the guys with the stirrups, or is that someone else? No, someone else. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, onwards. So, so these were all types, and they were all there for the for the general entertainment of the crowd. So whether it was lassoes, horses or short stabbing swords, it all added to the general entertainment. Okay, Jamie, well, before we come on to Biggus Dickus, we're going to talk about training. I thought it was up to me to lower the tone of this podcast. (laughs) You see what you've done to me. I have a rival. (laughs) Okay, so training. Uh, The earliest known gladiator school was in Capua in uh, 105 BC and these schools were called they were called Ludus and they were run by Lannisters Lannisters the problem is you know in Game of Thrones which you haven't watched one of the the, the worst family the, the most evil family are called the Lannister family oh, and right. it's clearly come from this <laughs> yeah. you know because Lannisters were the managers of the gladiator schools and they were generally looked down upon as being a rough sort but necessary yeah I mean, the thing about the nister is that they were essentially ex-soldiers or ex-gladiators so they were pretty tough they were pretty debauched and probably fairly corrupt but they were there to essentially beat the gladiators into shape to make sure they moved up the palace grade as it was called the the, the different grades to to the top the primus palace and that was very important because you wanted to make sure that when your gladiators came from your school to fight because most events they drew gladiators from the same school they had to be evenly matched they had to be of the same quality the same grade and you didn't want to see them killed every single time yeah it's quite an investment so not only would the the Lannister would be the manager, but there'd be someone who could be a knob who would own the gladiator school. That was res- that was seen as okay and respectable, but they wouldn't want to lose their finest men for nothing. Yes, you could make a great deal of money from owning a gladiator school. The, 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 the big bucks came about from when you had a great event, and that's when they used the other schools. There were four in Rome, for example. The Ludus Magnus was that huge school that was set up by Emperor Domitian in the first century AD. It it had a great reputation and actually appeared, actually featured in various civil wars and uprisings later on. Bodyguards could be drawn from those schools. And the source of gladiators, um, they came from prisoners, condemned men and slaves but also from volunteers. Yes, there was always the octorati, the the sort of adventurers, those who wanted to pit themselves in the arena. We talked about the allure of gladiators, and this is proof that there were those who volunteered, who thought they were good enough to move up the rankings and progress in gladiator school. And you could end up rich, you could end up with your freedom, you could end up as a trainer of gladiators. And that's what many of them did or sought to do. But I think some of the Octorati were people who 
uh, were down on their luck as well, weren't they? They they got debts or something, and then they could become gladiators to sort of refinance themselves. That's right, and it had to be given the approval of a magistrate. You had to be examined by a physician. So you had to be physically strong. You had to be up to the job. You weren't just thrown into uh, the pit, into the lion's den, so to speak, because it was about entertainment. So you had to be up to the job. The training, uh, I imagine, was uh, very tough, and we've talked about how you get to the various stages. How, how did it work with um, at the other end, the, the gladiator getting their freedom? Well, you had to win your fights, and you had to be good enough to get to the top, otherwise you'd be killed on the way. The strange thing is there was even a union for gladiators. There was the collegia, in which you paid a certain fee. You paid a subscription to that union, and that ensured that you were given a decent burial, you had funeral cover, and you had a sort of life insurance. Your family, if you had one, was paid a certain amount of money should you be killed in the arena or wounded. If you got to the point where you received your manumission or your freedom, um, that's similar to slaves being freed by their masters on their master's death and things like that. Is that very, you know? very similar. Yeah. Uh, but because Roman culture was so based on slavery mm. and so based on people being in servitude, there were all sorts of bureaucratic um, details that were sorted out. There was a sort of civil service, there were unions, there were all sorts of things that you, you essentially see evolving to the modern day. But, but Rome had sorted this out because it was so part of their culture. So you would actually have to pay to become a gladiator under some circumstances? You certainly had to pay your fees to your union. That was important. Yes, but also if you wanted to become an octorati, you had to pay a fee. Yes, you did. It was very much part of that system. So all this training of gladiators led to the ability to put on spectaculars. Give us some examples, Jamie. Well, the Nomachia were very famous because they were on a huge scale. In 46 BC, Julius Caesar dug a, a pit uh, off the Tiber and flooded with water and, they, and had a deep-sea battle, I mean, reenacted a battle with 6,000 prisoners of war fighting to the death. In 2 BC, Augustus Caesar did exactly the same. He had dozens of ships, you know, full-scale ships, fighting battles. You know, they always talk about flooding arenas, flooding amphitheatres, and it's believed that it, the inauguration of the Colosseum, it might have been flooded, although historians sort of quibble about this. But there's certainly evidence that, for example, in an amphitheatre in Verona, there were axial conduits from viaducts that could have flooded it and then allowed it to drain. And this would have been a few feet deep, and they would have used small boats. But you still had major battles, reenactments of historical battles at sea. And a lot of people were killed during those battles, a lot of gladiators or prisoners of war. And do you think in those battles, uh, the ones that weren't killed, the wounded would be finished off as well, wouldn't they? 
If they were prisoners of war, certainly. If they were gladiators, they would have been medically tended because they were expensive. Yeah. You know, they had a right to medical attention and the slave masters, the owners of the gladiator schools, certainly would have wanted them to survive, to fight again another day. Right, that was that. And then uh, what other spectaculars did we have? Well, you got the venatio, you got the hunting of beasts in the arena, and huge numbers were, were killed. I mean, Julius Caesar at one stage used the Circus Maximus to hunt 400 lions. It was big business, bringing those animals, bringing those beasts, whether they were elephant, hippo, lion, they were all brought from Africa. Yeah, bears. Hmm? And bears. Oh, sorry. Uh, That's a great cry from the gladiator. You've got a bear behind you <laughs> as his trousers fall off. I don't believe you. <laughs> That's what my grandfather said when he had a pet bear. <laughs> anyway, I'll go down that route. Um, but, the, but, the, but that was not the same. The hunts, the venatia, was not the same as the punishment of criminals with, by being eaten by lions. No, damnatio, uh, the bestiari, those who were set to fight animals face to face, they were in real trouble. They were quite often the lowest of the criminal classes and they were thrown into the arena to die, not to kill the beast, but to die. And they were often given tiny little knives or wooden swords and this was to increase the entertainment for the crowd. Sometimes they were tied to posts. You didn't have to be a Christian to be fed to the lions. I mean, the bestiari often were fed to the lions. Those big cats were fed human remains and offal to, to give them the taste, turn them into man-eaters, and then they were set loose. And if you go to the Colosseum today, you can certainly see the winches, the capstans, and the platforms that took those animals up in cages onto the floor of the amphitheatre onto the floor of the Colosseum. It was a real crowd pleaser. And this form of punishment and execution went on for a long time, well into the Christian period. Oh, it went into the 7th century AD. So it was something that was really popular and made, made a splash, so to speak. And even in 1022, you got the king of Constantinople feeding his chief eunuch to a lion because that's what you could do if you were an absolute ruler. So that, again, was something that rulers have always done. Look at Uday Hussein, Saddam Hussein's son, who always had a reputation for feeding those who were out of favour to his pet lion. Yeah. And what happened to him? I wonder. I think he got done in as well. Maybe he got done in by his own lions, but that's he probably fought. too much to hope for. So all of this gladiatorial discussion really leads us onto the myths left behind. And perhaps the most famous one is, which way does the thumb point? You can put it down to 1872 and Polici versus famous painting of the gladiator with his foot on his fallen adversary, looking up at the emperor, waiting for the thumbs down. It's that thumbs-down thing that is the greatest myth because no-one really knows. But it's now thought, of course, that the thumbs-up meant kill your adversary, kill the wounded man. Cut the throat. 
yeah. cut the throat, whereas yeah. a clenched fist or the thumb down meant sheathe your sword. Yeah. The man is to be saved. The, one of the myths is that gladiators were always killed in combat. They weren't. Uh, quite often, things were declared a draw. Quite often, people wanted to see that gladiator, if he had put up a good fight, fight another day. And if a man was wounded and could be saved, a physician could treat him, then there was no reason why he couldn't be recycled and come back for more at the next event. Yes, yeah, so it's a little bit like they call the Aristia, I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, in Greek myth, where two heroes uh, encounter each other in some form of duel or even on the battlefield and everyone would gather around and, and they would fight and it was a sort of example of the pinnacle of their fighting ability. Uh, and, you know, we've got the famous examples of Achilles and Hector and their duel, to, which ended in the death of Hector, um, and many others in the Iliad. So I think the crowds, I think you're right, the crowds wanted to see more. And if it was, a, if it was somebody who they liked, they wanted to see them fight again. Yes, if it if it was heroic, if someone had put up a, a, a good, good fight, a good struggle, they would certainly want to see that person again. And we've talked about the gladiator who won most of his fights but lost four and drew quite a few. So it wasn't always a fight to the death. And it goes back to the Cestus. It goes back to those gladiators who were essentially prize fighting. And whether it's bare-knuckle boxing in the 18th and 19th century to slave fighting to bare-knuckle fighting today. Oh, well, Jamie, you're getting ahead of yourself with the PS because is, is not the PS a discussion we're going to have about Mandingo? It, it does lead us inexorably to the postscript because it rounds it off that people like to watch fighting and people like to see blood being drawn. It's the fight, not really just the death, that is all important. Right, so let's do it. The P.S. Mandingo. Yes, that's a name that derives from the Mandinka tribe in Sierra Leone. And it's generally applied to this concept of slave fighting. And there's a lot of myth and rumour, just as there is about gladiatorial combat, whether slaves were made to fight to the death or not. And given that they were chattels, they were expensive property of a slave owner, it's sometimes doubtful whether those slave owners wanted to see those slaves killed, particularly their most prized slaves, their most powerful and strongest slaves. But there is some historical evidence that slaves who did well on the fighting circuit were brought over to England because there weren't domestic slaves in England. They came over as free men and became prize fighters and did very well on the prize fighting circuit. You get people like Tom Molyneux, for example, who came over. I think he was known as Black Ajax. Uh, yeah, there's an excellent book by... Uh, George MacDonald Fraser, who wrote the Flashman books, uh, a novel called Black Ajax. It describes his time fighting in, in, in England and his relationship with Tom Cribb, who was a very famous English prize fighter of the time. Yes, and Tom was believed to have fought in America and actually won 
his slave owner $100,000 in a fight and gained his freedom and $500 from winning and succeeding. And these were believed to be fights that involved killing the opponent. And he was eventually taken under the wing of someone called Bill Richmond, who was known as the Black Terror, who also became a pugilist, who also became a prize fighter over here. And there were other black prize fighters, such as Hannibal Straw, who had been slaves in America, won their freedom. And Bill Richmond, he apparently had been found and brought over by the future Duke of Northumberland, by Hugh Percy, uh, because he had been fighting other slaves during the American War of Independence around that time and did extremely well. And he had fought English soldiers out in America and was so impressive that he was brought back here and entered in the prize-fighting circuit. And the whole whole business of prize-fighting and bare-knuckle fighting was incredibly popular in England. I mean, that's, I think, why eventually Lord Queensbury came up with his rules for boxing, because these fights, although they weren't with weapons and therefore they weren't dead, they weren't mortal in the same way, they went on for such a long time and the damage was so considerable that people did get extremely badly hurt. And there's still bare-knuckle fighting today and there are people who make a living from it and a good living from it. But even in the 1930s, 1936 to 38, you had the slave narratives. You had former slaves being interviewed and their evidence shows clearly that various slave plantations in, in states such as Alabama, there were some plantations who had their champions that fought slaves from other plantations, and sometimes it was to the death. And this sort of evidence is, is on record that those sort of fights took place. But it is anecdotal. It's very difficult to pinpoint and pin the actual evidence down because obviously it wasn't written at the time and there weren't photographs. Very good. Well, it's a bloody business. Gladiators have a rightful place in our Bloody Violent History podcast series. Ave Caesar, morturati te salutant. What? Bye, Jamie. Bye, Tom. (laughs) So it goes. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe to BVH and it really helps others to hear about us if you leave us lots of stars and a review. You can also find us on our website at bloodyviolenthistory.com. For suggestions and comments, you can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.